Lord, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the blessed truth about who Jesus is, what he has done for us. Where would we be without this Savior who, whose righteousness is our righteousness, not because we did anything, but that we looked unto him and that righteousness was credited to it as if we had done it ourselves. And hence we shall be saved from the wrath of, the, of you, O Lord. Teach us tonight from your wonderful word for the, uh, as the Holy Spirit will teach us. We pray in, his, in the Lord's precious name, amen. We're in John 3, and I want to begin at verse 22. Now, I had intended actually go from verses 22 through 36, but I thought because of the nature of a couple of verses, would want to really spend some time on them because I know there are a lot of questions revolving a couple of these uh, verses. So we'll only get, uh, I'm just going to read verses 22 down through um, 24. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. And John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim, because there was much water there, and they were coming and were being baptized. Now, in this regard... Remember, John chapter 3 is Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus all the way up through verse 21. And again, Jesus had to explain to Nicodemus that of the necessity of the new birth. Nicodemus, being of the Pharisees, was a work salvation-oriented religion. And what Jesus was saying was going right over his head and he said, Nicodemus, you've got to be born again in order to see the kingdom of God. Now, looking at verses 22 and 23, I've said need some considerable explanation because, first of all, if you look at verses 22, it says, And Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. And you go, wait a minute, I didn't know... I didn't know Jesus was doing any baptizing himself. That what seems what that seems to imply. Well, no, he wasn't. Because if you look over at chapter 4, look at uh, John 4, verse 2. Sorry, verse 1. When therefore the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, verse 2, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. Now, in this regard, would anybody like to uh, adventure maybe why Jesus himself did not baptize anybody but he let his disciples do? Anybody maybe want to adventure any theory why Jesus himself wouldn't baptize anybody? Okay, let me, let's turn to a passage, and I think I'll tell you why I think Jesus 
never baptized anybody personally. Turn, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and look at verses 3 through 5. Paul's dealing with some of the issues at the church of Corinth. And part of the issues was jealousy and strife among them. So we're going to pick up at 1 Corinthians 3, verse 3. For you are still fleshly, for since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly and are you not walking like, like mere men? For one says, I'm a Paul. And another says, I'm of Apollos. Are you not mere men? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity. So you had these people saying, hey, I'm a disciple of Paul. No, I'm, I'm of Apollos, because Apollos spent a lot of time in Corinth. Or I'm of Peter. Now, can you imagine if someone says, oh, you think that's some? I got baptized by Jesus. Now, you can see the issue. People have this idea of beginning to form ranks with people. For example, I've, I've learned of people, and I've seen their pictures on Facebook. I've seen people go to the Holy Land, Jerusalem, and you know what some of them have done? They got a picture of them. They got rebaptized in the Jordan River. Now, we can go into a whole lot of theology about there's no need for a rebaptism, but as if, why would you want to be, because, well, isn't that where John the Baptist baptized? It was in the Jordan, and that where Jesus was baptized? In the Jordan. So, if I be really spiritual, I ought to get baptized in the Jordan River. So, you see, there's, there's kind of this superstition that goes around, which I think, and one reason why, we're not told that specifically why Jesus didn't do it. He let his disciples do it. Now, there's an important question we got to ask ourselves is, well, take a look, turn back to John 3 and, and look at verse 23. It says, in John, meaning John the Baptist, was, was baptizing in Anin, near Salim, because there was much water there, and they were coming and were being baptized. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back to a part there uh, in a meaning, because verse 23 is one of the great proof texts of our Baptist brethren who insist that bat, the proper mode of baptism is immersion. And you know why they say that? Because it says there was much water there. Now, you understand, not only our Baptist friends, but there are other denominations believe you got to be immersed, meaning you got to go under the water and then come out. You got to go under the water to be baptized. So they would say, well, the only way that can take place is you got to have much water. So it says right here's the proof. We're going to come back to that and say, does that really teach that? But for the time being, 
what we see is that there was a period of time that the ministry of John the Baptist overlapped with the beginning of Jesus's ministry. And both were engaged in baptism. Of course, uh, Jesus' disciples baptizing. But their ministries overlapped until John was arrested. And you know the rest of the story there. He'll end up getting beheaded by Herod. But their ministries overlapped. They both engaged in a baptism. Now the question is, and you may be asking yourself, is there any difference between John's baptism and the baptism that Jesus' disciples did? The answer is not really. And we're going to demonstrate why not really. Now, they're both engaged in water baptism. Uh, First, we're going to talk about John the Baptist's comment. Remember in Matthew 3, he said, I come baptizing with water, But he who comes after me, whose sandals I'm not worthy to unlatch, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John says, I got a baptism of water, but the Messiah is a baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, the baptism of John um, that he was referring to to, uh, Jesus, who would baptize with fire, and would baptize with the Holy Spirit, that's obviously an internal baptism. I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So that's mainly referencing an internal baptism. But we see that John was engaged in an external baptism with water, and so was Jesus' disciples. So really, here in our text, it's not talking about that internal baptism because Jesus' disciples were engaged with a water baptism much like, like John was. Now, both John and Jesus' disciples were baptizing with water. Now, we know later on, we could ask ourselves, was the baptism of Jesus' disciples, was it, is there any difference in the sense that it was done in the name of the, tri, the, the, of the Trinity, the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit? We're not told here in that text that that is what they were doing. We, we do know later on when Jesus, after his resurrection, you remember, and right prior to his ascension, that he gave the great commission to his, his apostles. And in Matthew 28, 19, he says, go into all the world and uh, teach them all that I've commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, to answer the question of the nature of the baptisms of John and Jesus, here's what we got to understand what these baptisms that they were doing, John and Jesus' disciples. Luke chapter 3, verse 3 says this, And he came into the country about Jordan, preaching the baptism for the forgiveness of sins. So this baptism that Jesus was uh, preaching and obviously would be associated with the baptisms that his disciples were doing 
was for the forgiveness of sins. Now remember, in we've looked at this passage in Matthew 3. In Matthew 3, 6, remember John, it says there that all were coming and being baptized by John. And the text there in verse 6 says, confessing their sins. They came confessing their sins and wanted to be baptized by John, who said, my baptism is a baptism of repentance. Now, that's what repentance is. Part of it is confessing of sin. Now, we know from the scriptures that John the Baptist was the forerunner of the Christ. He said, uh, I am he that was sent uh, to bear witness of him. Uh, he was fulfilling prophecy. He was uh, the way he came, as Isaiah says, to prepare the way for the Messiah. And that was John's ministry. So you see, if one is going to be a Christian, it obviously begins with confessing your sin, right? You've got to repent. And we know that no one is saved without confessing of their sins. This is repentance. Now, John rebuked the Pharisees and the Sadducees, remember, in Matthew chapter 3, who were coming to him to be baptized like everybody else. And he said, oh, hold on. Who, who told you to flee the wrath to come, you, you brood of vipers? He knew their heart. He knew that their religion was just external. And they were trusting in the fact that they were children of Abraham. And that was the context why, why uh, John says, and when they claim that we're, they were children of Abraham, he says, look, I, I could raise up the children of Abraham through these stones. God is ready to lay ax uh, to the tree. And the tree he was referring to was the religion of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now they weren't coming like the others to confess their sins because after all, they were self-righteous. That was the problem with the Pharisees. They were self-righteous people for the most part with very few exceptions. So what we see here, John the Baptist was preaching the necessity of repentance for the forgiveness of sins and this is exactly what Jesus was preaching. In Mark 1, 14 and 15, we read that Jesus, when he, after he came out of the desert being tempted by the devil, 40 days and 40 nights, it says he, he came saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Notice those two things. Repent and believe in the gospel. In essence, if you were to boil down the gospel message, that's what it is. It is involving a repentance, a turning away from sin, a confessing of sin, and, and turning in faith to Jesus. So you have to have both. You got to confess your sins, you got to repent of it, and you got to believe uh, in who Jesus is. Turn with me to, to Luke 24 for a moment. 
And we're going to look at verses 46 and 47. Now remember, this is the occasion in which this is right after the resurrection and Jesus is walking on a road and he ends up walking with two disciples, not the 12, but two were disciples and they didn't know who they were walking with for a while until he opened their, uh, their minds and their hearts to realize this was the resurrected Jesus. Well, the resurrected Jesus meets up with his disciples and now this is the command that Jesus gives to his apostles. Look at verses 46 and through 48. Jesus said, back at verse 45, it says, Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Now notice the command of Jesus to his disciples. Preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You can't be forgiven of sins until we repent. Preach repentance for the forgiveness. Now note, this is what John the Baptist was preaching, was it not? He was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And we can assume that the the baptism that Jesus' disciples was doing was also for the forgiveness of sins. Now, if we note, if there's any difference in the the baptism of John with the baptism of Jesus' disciples, it's this, is that John was the forerunner, the preparer of the way of the Messiah. Now that the Messiah has come, Jesus, therein lies the difference. The Messiah who had not yet come that John preached and the Messiah who has come, who is Jesus. Now we know one thing about baptism is this in terms of water baptism. What good is water baptism if there's not the corresponding internal baptism that goes with it. Now that's a mistake that unfortunately many make that put all this emphasis on the outward act of the necessity of it. Now that is important in the scriptures, the outward act of water baptism, but that will not save you as such I want to just quote, you can follow with me in the back back of the Trinity hymnal, chapter 28, section 6 on baptism. It's a wonderful statement. The chapter is chapter 28 of baptism. Baptism. 
Now look at, at section six. The efficacy of baptism, that's just a fancy word for the power. That's what efficacy means. The power of baptism is not tied to that moment of time wherein it is administered. Yet notwithstanding by the right use of this ordinance, the grace promised is not only offered, but really exhibited and conferred by the Holy Ghost to such, whether of age or infants, as that grace belongeth unto, according to the counsel of God's own will, in his appointed time. Now, the act of water baptism is a sign pointing to something, and it's a seal to authenticate the reality of something, if that exists. Now, it may exist at the moment, they said, at the moment the water is applied, but not necessarily. There are those, we know about covenant baptism, and as infants being covenant uh, baptized, God may work in their heart right then, but then it could be 60, 70 years later. Like my mother was 84 before she actually confessed Christ. But she was baptized as an infant just like I was. It took 18 years for me, but it still was good, okay? When God in his appointed time chose. But so the water baptism is a sign of something that's real if, it's, if it actually is there by the power of the Holy Spirit. So regardless, repentance was necessary for the forgiveness of sins. And we see that that is common in the baptism of, of John and the baptism that Jesus' disciples did. Now I'll turn over to Acts chapter 10 for a moment. And here's the situation where Peter is going to go to the household of Cornelius who had a vision that he ought to go to, to see Peter. Cornelius was a Gentile. And we know from Acts chapter 10, and I'm going to pick up verse 26 and following. Well, actually, I don't want to spend all that time. Peter goes to Caesarea, goes into Cornelius' household, and he preaches to the Gentiles who had gathered there in Cornelius' household. Now, if you look at verse 43, notice what Peter was preaching. First of all, uh, back up to verse 39, we are witnesses of all these things that he did both in the land of the Jews in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he should become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is to us, who ate and drank with him, and he arose from the dead. And he, and he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one 
who has been appointed by God as judge and living of the dead. Of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message and all the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out upon the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. And notice what Peter says. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Remember, Jesus came forward preaching that the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. When Peter preached to the household of Cornelius, they believed. And when they believed, the Holy Spirit came down upon them in a way that was unique. And the reason why it's not that everybody who is baptized of the Spirit speaks in tongues. Remember, that was one of the signs that happened on the day of Pentecost. What this was indicating was that God was breaking down the barrier between the Jews and the Gentiles, and he was making all both into one church. Now, the thing about it is, they were baptized with water after they believed, after the Holy Spirit had come into them and filled them, which goes to show, to refute some who says, well, you've got to be water baptized in order to be saved, well, that, that's not the process that this text says. No, they believed and then were baptized with water. So the baptism of John and of John and of Jesus' disciples were essentially the same. The only difference is John's baptism looked to the coming Messiah who would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire while Jesus' baptism is in the name of the one who is the Messiah. And that's why we're going to see next week when we go into the rest of of John 3, we're going to see how Jesus began to get a bigger following, which will disturb the disciples of John, saying, you know, this is not good, John. They're, They're following Jesus, not you. And we're going to see John says, well, that's the way it was supposed to be. So what we see here, ultimately, Jesus's baptism is a baptism of the Spirit, which is an internal cleansing. Remember what Jesus told Nicodemus. Nicodemus, you got to be born of water and of the Spirit if you're going to see the kingdom of God. And we noted uh, from Titus chapter 3, talks about that we're saved not by works done in righteousness, but by according to his mercy, 
by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Ultimately, Jesus' baptism is an internal baptism of the cleansing of sin. So what I want us to understand is when that ministry was overlapping between the Baptist and Jesus, it was still a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins therein. That's why they were essentially the same. Now, turn back to John 3, and let's deal for a moment about this much water here. And let's deal, let's ask the, the question is, is that phrase, much waters, automatically infer there had to be enough water for someone to go under? That's the question. Now, like I said, our Baptist friends and others believe, yes, it has to be. But here's the telltale point is this. The Greek word for baptism is the word, various forms, whether it's a verb or a noun, is baptizo or baptismos. That's the Greek word. So what's important is is this. How does the Bible use baptismo? So when when someone insists and come up to you and says, you know, you Presbyterians, you got it all wrong. You're not you're not baptizing uh, properly. We go and and why is that? Says well, baptism means immersion. You go really? You want to show me a verse that specifically says it is immersion? Now I'm going to go through several scriptures with you to show you that actually, no, it doesn't. And how the word baptizo is used. Now, one of the favorite passages that often is referred to is Romans chapter 6. Turn to Romans 6, verses 3 through 6. This is usually a passage that is insisted, well, it's, it, it has to be immersion. And you go, well, let's just look at the text and see what it what the text actually says. In Romans 6, beginning at verse 3, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, we shall also be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Now let me ask you a question. Do you see any water mentioned in that passage? There's no water mentioned. The word baptism is mentioned. The word baptismos is mentioned. Well, they said, well, it means he's buried. That means they went under the water and go, whoa, 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 hold on now. The text doesn't say anything like that. What it's saying is they were baptized into his death. Now, remember when I was preaching through the book of Romans, and we did deal with Romans chapter 6, 
What did we say was the primary meaning of baptism? It, it does involve cleansing from sin of the righteousness of faith, but the dominant idea is union with Christ. So what does this text say about baptism? We are baptized into his death. And when he died, we died with him. When he was buried, we were in union with him. So spiritually, we were buried with him. When he arose, we arose with him. There's nothing said about water here. Uh, Nothing said about, um, see, if you equate buried with him to under the water, we are adding to the text. And that, see, that is eisegesis reading into the text not exegesis reading out of the text. So that passage has nothing to do with baptism of of water by immersion. Um, Let's look at, turn to Acts Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8 and verses 37 through 39. Now, we, here's the situation where Philip is miraculously translated from one area in Judea over to a desert area where there's this Ethiopian eunuch in a chariot. <laughs> and they meet up together. And we're told, if you look at Acts chapter 8. Well, if you go back to verse 32, this Ethiopian eunuch was reading a passage of scripture that he did not understand. He was reading out of Isaiah chapter 53. And he asked the question of Philip, who is this talking about? Philip says, well, I'll tell you who it's talking about. And then we're we're told, verse 35, Philip opened his mouth and beginning from this scripture, meaning from Isaiah 53, he preached Jesus to him and they went along the road. They came to some water, some water. And the eunuch says, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. Now, our, our friends tell us, huh, there's, there's your immersion too. Well, let's just look at the text. They saw some water. And obviously during the preaching of Philip, he, the reason the eunuch probably said that, well, look, there's some water. He, Philip probably was talking to him about baptism that went on with John the Baptist and with, and with Jesus' disciples. So here's some water. Well, I, I want to be baptized. Now they said, our friends tell us, well, it says he went down into the water and then came out, and their interpretation is this. 
They went under the water and came out. Is that what it says? All it says, now, first of all, here's the problem if you think that the eunuch went under the water. Look what verse um, 38 says. They both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch. Now, if you if one interprets that the eunuch went under the water, meaning down, guess what? Somehow, Philip went down under the water with him, right? You know, well, that doesn't make sense. You're right, it doesn't make any sense. You know, the Greek words are very helpful. The Greek word is ek, means whether well, it's into and out. Let me illustrate to you what could easily be what happened. They saw water, they both, now watch this. Let's assume this right here is the water source. And it says they both went down into the water. Okay. Didn't say they went under the water. It says they both went down. And it says then they both came out. Does it mean they, they submerged and came out? No. If they walked in, it says they came out. You ready? I'm going to illustrate. They came out. They just came out. They just came out. Now, what we're going to demonstrate to you of how baptisms were performed in the Old Testament is very important, how things were cleansed. So the text doesn't mean that there was any submersion. It just means they went into it. And I'm going to tell you how it probably happened according to how the Old Testament does it. They went down, and probably this is how John baptized, got the water and poured it on his head. And the reason that is, that's how things uh, were baptized or uh, cleansed in the Old Testament. You know, sprinkling and pouring is associated with cleansing in the Old Testament. I want you to turn to a passage, Ezekiel 36, for a moment. And look at Ezekiel 36. And look at verse 25 and following. Now, this is one of the great places of the promise of the coming new covenant in the Old Testament. It's a magnificent passage. And notice, starting at verse 24, God says, For I will take you from the nations gathered you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, 
and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. What did John the Baptist say? I came baptizing with, uh, with water into repentance, but he who comes after me will baptize you with what? With the Holy Spirit. And this, this cleansing, the, the mechanism, the imagery that is given is that of sprinkling. By the way, the passage the Ethiopian eunuch was reading in Isaiah 53 or Isaiah 52 talks about the sprinkling of the nations. Now, I want you to turn, so we're talking about what could be, if it's not immersion, if baptizo doesn't necessarily mean immersion, what mechanism does it refer to? We're going to say the evidence here is sprinkling or pouring. Now, turn with me to Hebrews 9. And look at verses um, 10 through 15. Since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest, of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered to the holy place, once for all having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works? And for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant in order that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance." Now, verse 10, does most of all, I don't know what translation you're using. Does it say washings and virtually all y'all is reading? Does anybody have anything different than washings? Okay. You know what that word is? Greek? Baptismos. <laughs> That's what it is. So the question is, does, does baptismal always mean immersion? Well, no, here it refers to a sprinkling. You remember what the high priest would do when he would go into the Holy of Holies? He would sprinkle blood on the altar for the atonement of the sins of the people. Sprinkle blood on the altar. What we see here... Um, a couple of other passages we ought to take a look at. 
Now you're saying, well, preacher, you're spending an awful lot of time <laughs> on this one verse. I I'm doing so only to show you, to give you a line of argumentation to be able to deal with, uh, with brethren who insist that it has to be a certain way. And you're going to say, well, let's look at the biblical evidence and you're going to see that's not the case. Turn with me to Mark 7, verse 4. Now the Pharisees, let's back up to verse 1. And the Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered together around him when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when they come from their marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. Now, look at verse 4. That word cleanse themselves, you want to know what that Greek word is? Baptizo. Now, let me ask you this question. If baptizo always means immersion, how did they immerse themselves? The elders. It says they cleanse themselves. And then look at the end of verse 4. It says they were engaged in the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. That word is baptismo. There's our other word. And what they were doing is, well, one thing, if you have a table, you don't immerse a table in a room. They were ceremonially cleansing. They were engaged in baptisms. Let's look at another passage. Turn to Acts chapter 9, verse 18. Now, this is after Paul was converted on the road to Damascus, and Ananias in Damascus, uh, the Lord came to him and says, there's going to be a man coming to you that you need to help, because this man's blind, because remember when Jesus met Saul, he blinded him physically. And it says... Um, in, in John 9, 15, but the Lord said to him, go for he's a chosen instrument of mine to hear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias departed and entered the house, entered the house. And after laying hands on him, that is Saul, he says, brother Saul, 
the Lord Jesus appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, and immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. He regained his sight. He arose and was baptismos, baptized. All the indications of that verse is in that house, he was immediately baptized. All it would take to baptize him is to have some water and then baptize him. But he was baptized in that house. One other thing, we, we, we know that in Acts 16.33, when, when Paul and Barnabas were thrown in the Philippian jail, when God miraculously freed them, remember the jailer was ready to commit suicide. He said, don't, don't do it. And they witnessed to him and the Philippian jailer believed. It says he and his whole household, and it says they were baptized. Now, in Roman jails, there weren't normally any tubs where one could go down and immerse there was water source, and they, they used a water source to baptize the Philippian jailer. On the day of Pentecost, remember, on the day of Pentecost, Jesus had told his disciples, I want you to tarry in Jerusalem until he, the comforter, comes. And when he comes, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I mean, he will baptize you with... With, with fire. On the day of Pentecost, when they were gathered, how did the Spirit come down upon the disciples? It says it was Spirit was poured out upon the disciples. Consistent, very consistent with Old Testament imagery. Now, Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, verse 5, he had said, For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And how did the baptism of the Spirit come? By the pouring out from on high. Implying, how did John baptize? a similar way by pouring water upon those who are confessing their sins. The only reason, what, what I want, the reason I spent the time on this was to show you if you do a careful study of the scriptures, you're going to learn how these, Greek, how these words are used and then how they were applied. And nowhere, none of these texts imply immersion going under the water. Not one of these that we've looked at. Not one. And it was not consistent with Old Testament uh, practice of cleansing of vessels. It was done by pouring. It was done by sprinkling. 
The, 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 the ministry of the Spirit is referred to as pouring, the sprinkling of blood that Jesus, when he baptizes us with the Holy Spirit, he, he sprinkles us, as it were, with his blood. That's why the Reformed faith has understood that the proper mode is either by pouring or sprinkling. Now, let me mention this. While we believe that's the biblical mode, if someone comes and they're immersed, we accept that as a, as a valid baptism. But I promise you, if you go to one of their churches and all you've been done is been sprinkled or if you've been baptized as an infant, you will not join that church unless you are immersed. That's, that's the way it is. Um, and some take it to an extreme. Our, our Baptist brothers, they don't. Uh, the Church of Christ, the Christian church say, unless you are water baptized, you cannot be saved. You cannot be saved. Unless you are immersed, you cannot be saved. Well, let me ask you. If you only had one verse, when that thief was hanging on the cross, do you remember what Jesus said to him? The one who said, uh, we deserve to be here. You don't deserve it. And he says, Jesus, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? You remember what Jesus said? Today, you shall be with me in paradise. Now, where was the thief on the cross water baptized? He wasn't, was he? Now, water baptism pictures, it is a sign of cleansing, and it pictures the seal of the Holy Spirit. But in and of itself, it has no power. The power is the Holy Spirit is where the power is. So, I intended originally to get further. We'll get, I promise you we'll get further next week. But I wanted to deal with those two passages that can be confusing to people, especially the baptism of Jesus and John. So let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would be with us and teach us to, to look and study the scriptures that we may, we may learn. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.